All right, welcome again, everyone. So glad to see you. We are journeying through the book of Hebrews. And we're also going through 1 Timothy in the morning at 9.30 every Sunday. And we just started the book, so it's not too late to jump in. I mean, you could always come anytime. But it's a real uh, fruitful time of, of uh, not only just, excuse me, diving deep into the Word and expounding the Word, but a time of discussion um, and questions and insights and things like that. So I invite you all next Sunday to get here at 9.30, <clears throat> enjoy some donuts and coffee, and come and uh, listen to our study in Timothy. So today we are going to be in Hebrews, and we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to take, I think, the... Let's see where we're at here. I don't think we're finishing the book, uh, the chapter today. <clears throat> Actually, we are. We're going from verses 5 all the way through verses 14. And so I'm going to read those now. And, and just to give you guys uh, an idea of where we're at here, the Hebrews were hearing from what we believe to be, or what I believe to be, the Apostle Paul writing, but I refer to it as the writer of Hebrews because there's many different views on who wrote this. But he is exalting Jesus Christ as God, and he is also exalting Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man. And he's going on to tell the people, these Hebrews, who were still very much having a difficult time coming out of Judaism and reconciling what they used to believe with, uh, with this new Christianity that is really not divorcing themselves from the old, but is actually the Jehovah God that they've been following and that they've learned uh, all for their whole entire life. So he starts to compare Jesus with the angels. And so last week we talked a little bit about angels, but now what he does is he goes from verse 5 all the way through 14, and we see uh, him compare Jesus to the angels in various ways. So the scripture, you could follow along, it should be up on the screen. It says, for to you, or I'm sorry, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Now, if you're seeing these big all caps, that's because when you see all caps, these are quotes, direct quotes from the Old Testament. And there's actually seven in this passage. Verse six, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. In verse 10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up, and like a garment they will also be changed. <clears throat> but you are the same, your years will not come to an end. Verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
And finally, 14, are they not all ministering spirits, meaning the angels, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Very interesting how this all flows out. We're going to get into that. But the first question I have for you today, I'll start off with a question is, who are you? Who are you? That's a big, broad question, isn't it? I remember being seven years old, wondering for the very first time, having the consciousness to ask myself this question, standing in my bathroom mirror, looking up above the counter, saying, who am I? I didn't discover who I thought I was until years later when I started studying philosophy and learned that I was a solipsist at seven years old. And you probably have never heard of that, as I have it until I uh, read about it in some book in seminary. But solipsism is the view that you, the you yourself, is the only true thing that can possibly be known. And how that plays out is that right now in my life, there's nothing else going on in the world other than this right here. If I were to walk out of this door, you guys would just simply disappear because the world revolves around me. That's who I thought I was as a young child. I thought when I was driving to my grandmother's house, nothing was still back at my home. And that sort of formed an identity for me. But again, I've I've started to work myself out of that, thankfully. Um, But what does it mean to you when you think of who you are? Did, Did you become who you are by the choices that you've made? Did you become who you are by your parents, your upbringing, your circumstances, your environment, or maybe your genetics or your nationality? Are we who we are based on who the world sees us as? I remember being uh, out to to dinner with someone who was a decent, famous uh, actor, um, and um, something happened at the restaurant, and we needed a table, and he said, don't you know who I am? Like, we don't want to wait 25 minutes. I was embarrassed by that. Great guy, by the way, if he ever listens to this uh, and puts that together. Sort of forgot about that. But seriously, though, I mean, the world, he thought the world perceived him a certain way. That was his identity. Meanwhile, that person, he was not recognized. And so what is your true identity, do you think? You see, I believe it's not who or what we think we are, but really what we must come down to is what is the essence of who we are. Now, in Jesus, uh, in Jesus's life, he was asked, um, <clears throat> well, actually, he asked Peter in Matthew 16, 13 to 16, he asked his disciples, he said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? <clears throat> Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? And then Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the king, the Messiah, the son of the living God exactly what our writer is telling us here that Jesus is. It wasn't who people thought Jesus was or who you know they were talking about. That didn't make his identity. It was who he actually was, the son of the living God. And we have the same sort of capability to define 
who we are if we make certain, uh, there are certain requirements, I should say, to do that, which we're going to talk about. Because the problem is, is that one of the most miserable things would be is who we think we are or what we think we are is completely wrong. That would be so terrible to think that you go through your whole life thinking you're one person, but you're really someone else. And I don't mean in a weird, mystical way, but you having some identity. You know, you see this like in sports, right? The, 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 especially uh, I'll use football as an example. When people have really long, uh, successful or, or long football careers, they get done playing football because of injuries and age and everything catches up. And they sort of are having a, they have a crisis. They've been playing football since they were seven years old, maybe younger. Who knows? Everyone's been telling them how great of a football player they are, how they stand out. They made it to the NFL. They were genetic freaks their whole life. They got all the attention. And now nobody cares anymore. Not necessarily. You know what I'm saying. Like from a big perspective for them, they have this identity as the popular football player on TV. And now the only thing to do is to become an announcer. <laughs> but that you, that's funny because you think, oh, they can just do that. It's not anybody that can just do that. They start training for that while they're playing football. And there's a lot that goes into that. But what I'm trying to say is they, 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 they start to ask the question, who am I? And they go through an incredible crisis because their identity was always associated to an exterior And so if who we think we are and what we think we are is wrong, it could be a tragedy. Now, the writer of our passage today saw two big identity problems, which I believe he goes into here uh, to try to solve. One identity problem was the people that he was writing to had an identity problem with Jesus. Who truly is Jesus? Is he an angel Is he the prophet that Moses talked about? And you're saying he's some order of a high priest like Melchizedek, but yet he's fully God, yet he's fully man. They didn't grasp like we can now because we have the all of scripture and all this scholarship and all this research. We can look into it and connect the dots very easily if we want, if God opens our eyes to do that. But it wasn't quite so easy for them, especially right at the cusp of this here where they were coming. It was just a tumultuous time. Around AD uh, 64, we discovered that this is when this was happening, a real tumultuous time for Christians. And so that was their first identity problem. And of course, you know where it's going. The second identity problem was who were these Hebrew people? Who were they? Did they have a good grasp on who they were? And are these two things intimately tied together? So the the text shows us, like I said, in the first five verses, we didn't read this part of the text today, but after the past couple weeks, the the writer's telling them that Jesus is God, the Son of God, and with a full human nature, better than the angels. But now he goes into, and here we see that number seven of completeness again, seven Old Testament references that we read. And this comparison here is very unique. Because a lot of times when we see things in the scriptures, we automatically think, Well, you know what? He's writing this as an apologetic, meaning he's trying to make a defense for something. He's trying to defend the fact that Jesus is God. He's trying to defend the fact that he's fully man and fully God. 
The way this is written, it's called a katina, if I'm, if I'm correct in the pronunciation of that. And that means it's a, it's a chain of related expressions or ideas that are very, they're written in a very peculiar way. And so these aren't written in a way that he's trying to expound on the fact like today you are, uh, you are my son and today I have begotten you. He just drops that and then moves on to the next thing. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And so these then go back and back. And what they're doing is they're comparing Jesus with the angels. To which of the angels did he ever say this? That you're my son. And, and I will be a father. Jesus wasn't a father to the angels in the sense that he is to Christ and even to us. And then it says in verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, when he says firstborn, just as a little caveat here, it doesn't mean he's first created. Jesus was not created. Firstborn in rank, the preeminent one, as we spoke about in the past. And then in verse 7, of who the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But he says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the, the, the angels, they're here and gone like wind and fire. But Jesus, O God, it says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then he continues to go on and compare these things. So he goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is above angels in rank, being God himself, but they were missing the magnitude and the greatness of the true identity of Jesus. And this was their first problem, missing the true identity of Christ. And what was the one thing that they were really, that, that one, one aspect of this that they were completely messing up on was that they were entrenched in old ideas about God. Entrenched in old ideas about God. Now, they were familiar with the God of the Old Testament, but they were so married to the fact that they were part of the covenant people and that God was going to act in a certain way at a certain time according to their traditions that they put God in a box. And I believe we do the same thing. We put God in a box and and limit not only what God can do for us in certain situations, but we put God in a box and we say, "This this must be happening this way because this is the way God always has acted in the past. Oh, well, you know, I've done this wrong, so therefore God is now going to do this to me. And we create this little image of God that we sort of created. When in fact, God doesn't operate that way, does he? He's a God of love and a God of grace. He's a God that looks at you as his child and will discipline you in love unto to, to change, not to punish you for the sake of punishing you. And he doesn't necessarily punish us because there is no punishment anymore. It would be like us going in to pay a ticket that is no longer existent. What would the police department say? Sorry, it's not here. Well, no, I, 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 you know, no, somebody paid that for you. Well, here, I'm giving you the money. All right, I'll just take it, put it in my pocket. You're going to just throw it away. Your debt is paid. 
But because we create God in a different image, we look back at God and we therefore determine what's going to happen as a result of that based on our perception. And this is exactly what they were doing. They were entrenched in old ideas, particularly traditions about how the Messiah was going to show up. And this was their biggest confusion. The Messiah was supposed to be someone that was going to come and literally destroy their enemies. All their enemies, the Romans, they were going to destroy every outskirt, all the outskirt enemies that were around there, all the little uh, cliques that were everything. And Israel was going to be exalted as the light of the nations as they were as they should be. But this Messiah wasn't just going to come and defeat physically their enemies. He was going to do it so much so that he was going to make the temple right again and allow Israel to, to, to follow the law perfectly without anybody on top of them telling them how to do it, when to do it. And what they thought was going to happen was God was going to look down and go, now I'm pleased. You're out of exile. You're forgiven because you got yourself right. And that's the one thing that has not changed in humanity. We were talking about it in Sunday school. You know what? It's part of our nature to think that we can save ourselves. It's part of our nature to think that we're good enough to save ourselves. Why? And I like to look at it as back in the garden, looking, Adam and Eve looking and going, we could be like gods if we eat this. And they ate it. And that pursuit of trying to be like God poisoned human nature, poisoned humanity. And it's part of, it's ingrained inside of you. You think you could be like God outside of Christ. You think you could be like God And the first thing you try to do is save yourself. And you've created all sorts of systems and all sorts of programs and all sorts of things in place to make sure that as long as you do all this stuff, you're okay. And I hate to tell you, but you're you're putting your trust in, you're like that seven-year-old kid like me, thinking I'm a solipsist, thinking nothing else. I've created that world. And therefore, now my identity is in what? My my identity is in my works, what I can do. And I start to look at God going, look at me, God. How do I, I'm I'm measuring up pretty good compared to all everybody else out here, right? And this is what the Hebrews, in a nutshell, the same thing, this is what they were thinking. I want to stake, I want to look back, I want the Messiah to come and do it this way. He's not doing it that way. But Paul, and the writer here of Hebrews, constantly told them all of those things that you wanted the Messiah to accomplish through this militant victory has been accomplished ten times better in the victory of the Son. He's not only defeated the enemy here, he's not only, he's not only over Caesar here, but he's also over the principalities and powers and rulers behind the Caesars of the world. He's wiped them all out. So it's a much bigger victory than you think. And it's the same in your life. The victory that you have in Christ is so much bigger than what you think. And we're bound, and listen, I say we, because we all, I struggle with this at the same time. I am bound by the chains of my old identity. 
And I constantly have to break myself out of those chains and realize what my new identity is. So they missed who Jesus was. They missed who Je- what Jesus did. And therefore, they had the wrong idea about themselves. So they weren't able to break from this identity and see the magnitude and greatness of who Christ is and therefore see the magnitude and greatness of what he's done for us in his grace. Unless we truly identify who Jesus really is, we can never understand who we are to be. Our identity, your identity as a Christian is melded into Jesus's identity. You're in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, your identity is melded into whatever it is that your circumstances have created. Maybe you're someone that is, you know, super successful and your identity has become the guy that helps out everybody financially. That's your identity. You're the financial guy. You know, I remember right when the internet came out and I started an internet system and I started marketing it and started doing well, I was the internet guy. You know, Pat, you're the internet guy. Hey, you're the internet guy. Can you fix my stereo too? You know, like, uh, you know, can you build me a website? Can you do this? Because you're the internet guy. I'm like, yeah, I'm the internet guy, right? Until more internet guys came and then I was just like every other internet guy. And now everybody's an internet guy. But my identity was formed based upon what I was doing, what I was good at. What? Notice it. It's everything about me. That's how my identity was formed. And you may even say, but Pat, what are you talking about? My identity is in Christ. I've submitted to who he is. He's my Lord and he is my Savior. And that's great. But is that complete? If your identity is just in the fact that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're missing half of the piece, half of the puzzle. You're missing it. And you're missing it in a way that's detrimental to you. You're, you're, you, you've just eaten your hors d'oeuvres you, you, and you got stuffed. And you haven't walked into the banquet room yet for the feast. And that's what this writer is trying to point us to. So, who is the writer telling us that Jesus truly is? You see, there's a much more powerful aspect of Christ's identity that sort of fl- that flows into Lord and Savior, Master that, that goes right along with the fact that he is God. And this writer is hammering it home verse after verse in this passage, and he spends more time on this very fact than in, in any other passage. You know, he says Jesus is God in the beginning, but the primary action of Jesus being God that the writer highlights is not him being Savior and Lord. That's not his highlight. He's not highlighting that he's our high priest. He's bringing something else to our attention, and that is that Jesus is not their king. He is the king. All caps. Every one of these Old Testament verses is from a messianic psalm proclaiming God as king. You got verse 5, which is from Psalm 2. 
You have verse uh, 5b, which is from 2 Samuel 7, 14. And I can go on and on. Verse 6, Psalm 97. Verse 8 and 9, Psalm 45. I want you to look them up. Go into your Bible this week and look at the little references and read those Psalms. You see, this is one of the reasons why I like this author being Paul. Because this is how Paul operates. When Paul quotes an Old Testament scripture, he's not just giving a proof text for what he's trying to talk about. What he's doing is, is he's drawing the reader back to that Old Testament verse. And there, when you go back and look at it and see what surrounds it in that chapter, the meaning of what he's talking about in the New Testament amplifies and explodes. And when you do that with these, I wish we could take every single one of these and go and and say it, but I want you to do that on your own because you don't want to hear seven weeks of sermons on Jesus is King, right? I mean, we could do that, but I'd rather you dig into it because you get the point. He is King, but he is the King. We have, we, we like to say he's my personal Lord and Savior. He's my personal King. He's my King, but ultimately what Jesus is, he is those things. But he is those things because he is the king over the world. You see, the gospel is not just about getting to a better afterlife. It's about something that happened in time that skyrocketed Jesus to the throne of God. This was the king that they were awaiting. The Messiah that was promised to come to free Israel from their sin, to free them from exile, and to bring in the kingdom of God. Again, everybody said, when you say kingdom of God, everybody goes, well, wait a minute, that's heaven, that's the street, gold streets. And No, that's not necessarily the kingdom of God. That's a picture of what the kingdom of God will be when we get into the new creation. But the kingdom of God is all about God's authority and rule activated now again in history, in time, over the universe, over this world. That's why Psalm 2 is so cool. And that's why he starts out with Psalm 2. Because if you read Psalm 2, you'll see that he is a very big threat. I'm going to go to it and just read it to you here. Just as a very short little psalm, but I'm going to read some of the highlights of it. Psalm 2, this is a warning. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. But it fails. He who is in heaven laughs. He scoffs. And then I love at the end, he says, do homage to the son that he don't become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him as king. And so this is, a, this is everything they were waiting for, but they were missing it. They were missing the true identity of Jesus in this passage is he's trying to tell them, yes, he's God. Yes, he's priest. Yes, he's Lord. Yes, yes, yes. But he is the king that you have been awaiting. He is the one. Now, what does this say about who you are? What does this say about who you are? And what you are, right? So if you're, if you're not a believer and you haven't believed the gospel, what does that say? It says you're outside, not just outside of the kingdom, because the kingdom is within us as well, 
but you're rebelling against the rule of the king. You are in the king's world. And now you're rebelling against the king. And you know what happens when you rebel against the king. You get your phones tapped. It gets much worse with Christ. You rebel against the king and you, like Jesus said, take those that will not bow down to me and that will not call me Lord. I forget the parable. I haven't even rehearsed this. I haven't looked this up. But what did he say in the parable? Bring them before me and slay them. And I'm not trying to say, scare you into this. I'm giving you, and I know this is, a, this is a parable, but I'm giving you a picture of what Jesus perceives for those outside of the kingdom's rule. If you want to rebel against the king, that's what it is. That's what it's about. But if, on the other hand, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, not only are you have Christ in you, but you are also a citizen of the king. That's why Paul says our citizenship isn't here, it's in heaven. Because the, 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 the list of kingdom citizens is in heaven. So our citizenship is in heaven, but it's for earth. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that was the whole picture of the Romans. What they did is they sent out troops to go take over provinces and they would they would claim it roman property roman territory a roman province and your citizenship was in rome but you were acting out what you, rome's law and rule in that province and so that's as a child of the king that's your job here is to act out and live out that rule of the king and I can say, I want to say and let you know, it's not just works. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to move you to do this. So this tells you your identity, who you are, is not what you do. It's not what you've done. It's not how you look or the respect you get. Your identity as a, as a Christian is Christ. And then everything else flows out of that. You are an heir to this royalty as well because you are in Christ. You have an inheritance with Christ. Where Christ goes, you go. Romans 8, 15 to 17. You've not received a spirit of slavery, leaving to fear again, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs. See, that's royal language. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if, if indeed we suffer with him, so that way we may be glorified with him. Now, again, I'm not, this isn't a command to go out and suffer. This is, he's talking to the Romans, again, that, that were suffering and they were contemplating bowing on the No, you have to suffer for Christ. You may be required to physically suffer for Christ, in, even in America, or even emotionally, however you want to look at it. But you are heirs with Christ. So you must do all you can to live to this new identity. And you have to make sure you don't relapse into the old. And the way to do that is by believing the gospel and then living the gospel. When you believe on Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, that he was buried, 
that he rose again on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures and is ascended into heaven, royally enthroned as king, you become his child when you believe that with your heart and you confess it with your mouth. Now, you right now are having a, a, a battle in your mind. You're having a battle in your mind. How does that work? Am I, am I doing that? And how do I do that if I'm not doing that? Here's how you do it. You cry out to God. You call out to him and you repent. But Pat, I can't repent. It's too hard. The bondage I'm in is too hard. Then you pray for God to grant you repentance because he does that. He gives us repentance. He gives us faith. He gives us the Holy Spirit. But you believe the gospel and then you become heirs with Christ. And now you have your new identity. Leave the old identity and all ideas behind, but realize that you've, cre- you've been created with a, un- a unique purpose. I'm looking at, I don't know how many people here, all individuals, all different, completely different, made differently for different purposes, with different gifts, with different skills. And it's not just to go and do here. It's to go and build for there. Okay? So you're called to use everything. So you may say, well, you know, like for me, when I got saved, I was into fitness and and, uh, I had a marketing a company for fitness and I went and sat down with my pastor and I said, I don't know if I could do this anymore because I have all these things that help people lose weight and gain muscle and all this stuff. And am I like, is that fleshly? Is that worldly? And you know, like, should I like abandon my business? You know, and uh, he helped me work through that because there's obviously a way to do it and a way not to do it. But that was who I was. That was who I was. I was entrenched in it my whole life. Did I lose all that? No, not necessarily. God used that, and he still does today for me, to be spiritually disciplined. So you take what you have, and you filter it through the blood of Christ. So having a new identity is, coming, is, is becoming aligning in with Christ. You are seated with him on his lap, I guess you could say, in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 5 to 7. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So we are seated positionally with Christ. And this becomes real people first and foremost. And I know this is hard for a lot of us because being loved is a difficult thing for people to do. We can give love, okay? We can give. We're very good at doing that. But receiving love because of what we've been through in our lives, because of who we've been hurt by, because of circumstances, but most importantly, because of our sin nature, receiving love is difficult. But you have to comprehend, like Jesus said, like, like Paul says, the depth of the love that is, is for you in Christ Jesus. He loved you so much that he laid his life down for you. Imagine that. Jesus, God, coming down to die for a person. He would have died for one single person. That's how much he loves. So he loves you so much that he not only saved you, but put you at his royal table. And that's the new identity I want you to take. You are a child of the king. I'm not saying that in the light of the prosperity gospel, okay? I'm saying it in a light of, if you're the king's child, then guess what? You're covered. You're protected. 
He's with you. He's going to guide you. He's going to leave you. But you got to become that child. Yeah, we talk about the grace of God, but I'm also telling you this. Repent and believe. Trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for everything that you've done for us in the gospel. I pray for each person here, Lord, that they would meet you today in a special way. That you, by your grace, would be pour, would pour out into their hearts and into my heart even more, Lord. As I sit and I look, Lord, I see uh, so many uh, malfunctions in my life. But I thank you for your grace. And I thank you, Father, that you would be a, a, permit me to be a child of the King. And I pray the same for the people that are in this church. That, that we would all comprehend what that actually means as we move forward in our life and our difficulties and our problems and our ups and downs in our sin, Lord, in our victories, we would know that where we are seated is the most incredible, safest place that we can be. And that's with you. In Jesus' name, amen.